That song gets played at weddings a lot, right? Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. Joy told me the title of it is called Sheep May Safely Graze. And it's by Johann Sebastian Bach. Is that right? So it is literally true that we do everything from Bach to rock. All right, so yeah, you come here, you're going to hear a variety of music, but every bit of it's going to exalt the Lord Jesus. Um, I heard about a young man who was ready, he was preparing for ministry, called of God, uh, extremely passionate, fired up, but young and wanted to interview, and true story, I understand, a person who was older and wiser, a great theologian, had studied the Word for many years, and uh, had quite a reputation. This young pastor went to him. And he asked him this question. He said, uh, I'm a young man, and I would value all your years of expertise. And so I want to ask you, after all your years of study, all your years of of deep study of theology, is there one truth that you could verbalize, just one sentence, one truth, that you would say is by far the greatest truth that you've ever found in all your years of study. The other man said, I can answer that. Yes, I can, and I can do it very simply. He looked at the young fellow, and this wise theologian said these words. The greatest truth I've ever learned is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now, You just can't get much better than that when it comes down to knowing something and being certain about that. There's a lot in this world that we are uh, uncertain about. This world can be filled with joy one minute and pain the next, difficulty one day and blessing the next. And really in a world of upheaval and changing values constantly, and uh, sometimes what is right is called wrong and what is wrong is called right, It is good to know, isn't it, that Jesus loves you, without a doubt. And uh, I want to ask you this morning, with this in mind, would you open your Bibles to an Old Testament prophet, uh, prophet, the book of Daniel, if you would. We're going to start a new series today, and in Daniel chapter 1, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, by the way, uh, it's page uh, 1370, 1370. And in uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, we're going to start a new series today. It's called Immovable and uh, how, to, how to stay immovable, how to stay steadfast when the world is changing around you. And one of the things, the book of Daniel is a book, basically, if you were to ask people about the book of Daniel, you, you would hear them say, oh yeah, it's a book full of prophecy, it's full of visions, and it really is. And I guess the primary meaning of the book of Daniel, the primary intent of the author was to give us some insight into future things, but a secondary application, and this is the one we're going to take for the sake of this series, about the next eight or nine weeks, we're not going to look at anything really prophetic in the book of Daniel. What we're going to do is learn lessons from the life of Daniel himself, from the life of the prophet. We're going to take it and kind of do a character study on it, because here's why. Trouble comes to all of us, doesn't it? Now, I just want to say this. I know there are several people here, a lot of folks here troubled. I, I've talked with two or three people this morning. I've talked with my staff this week. Tony's got his wife uh, in a hospital, has had a stroke. We've got a lot of different things going on. But this sermon series has been scheduled for some time. 
So I didn't pick this topic today and I didn't change it 30 minutes ago. And I want to talk to you about how to stand strong in the midst of adversity because trouble comes to us all. We live in the midst of a troubled world. Our world is saturated with evil. And uh, speaking of it, another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, warned us that a culture is headed for collapse when it actually reverses the values that God has given. When we reverse the values that have made our culture healthy, we're headed for a collapse. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, you can read these words. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Uh, this actually happened to the nation of Israel about 2,600 years ago. That nation, God's chosen people, fell into three major areas of collapse. Immorality, uh, idolatry, and injustice. That is, they began to conduct themselves immorally. They began to conduct themselves in an idolatrous way. They began to go after other gods. And they eventually wound up treating most of the poor and uh, other folks who didn't have much power in an, in a, in an unjust sense. Prophets like uh, Jeremiah spoke out against it and said, judgment is coming. Prophets like Zephaniah and Ezekiel, all these Old Testament books that we hear about, these prophets were crying out. Crying out to the people of God. Here's what they were saying to the nation of Israel. If we continue to do these things, we are going to lose two things, basically. We're going to lose God's protection, and we're going to lose our freedom. People ask me regularly, do you think God is sending judgment on America? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I will tell you this. God doesn't have to send anything to judge America. All God has to do is withdraw His hand of protection. Amen. We will curse ourselves. That's all He has to do. And so the same thing happened to Israel as I see happening around us a lot. It's an unsure time to live in, a difficult time to live in. And sure enough, the people of Israel did not listen to their prophets. And so around 600 B.C., a powerful emperor whom God raised up of a pagan nation called Babylon. It was an empire, actually. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He invaded Israel. He destroyed, absolutely obliterated Jerusalem, took about 25% of the population as prisoners of war, carried them off to Babylon, held them captive for 70 years, absolutely decimated the nation. And what happened was that the collapse of that culture shook everyone to their core. Israel was now awake. Now there was another guy who had been warning the nation of Israel. He was actually a songwriter, Old Testament songwriter. We call them psalms now. They were written as songs for the people. His name was Asaph. Asaph warned the people of God in the same time period. He wrote Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82, God is indicting two groups of people, unfair judges and dishonest leaders. And he says these words, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, which means think on these things. He's saying, how long? Judgment is coming. Will you judge unjustly? How long are you going to show partiality to the wicked? 
Then he gives them instruction. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and to the needy. Now he's giving them instruction. And he says in verse 5, they do not know. They uh, do not understand. They walk about in darkness. Now pay attention to the next sentence, which is kind of what we, I believe, are experiencing in our nation. All the foundations of the earth, he says, are what? Unstable. That is, the foundations are being shaken. Sounds to me like today's news in America. Seems like every foundation is being shaken in our nation today. The the foundational things, our, our, our morality, our form of government, our freedom of speech, our conscience, our national conscience. Seems like we have no sense of national conscience. The things that I watch the news now, I read on the internet, I'm just amazed at some of the things that, that our lawgivers are passing. Blows me away, especially concerning respect for life. Blows me away. We are living in a time of great upheaval, what I would call shaky times. There's a whole lot of shaking going on, right? And it's not anything to joke about. But in a rapidly changing world, God wants His people to be rock steady. God wants you to have a foundation that is firm, that is sure. God wants us to be immovable. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next about eight weeks, nine including today. How do I stand when everything around me is shaking, when everything I believe in is being attacked? Fascinating when you come to the book of Daniel. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on it today. But this study, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of a young, now listen to me, 15-year-old named Daniel. Can you imagine that when he was taken captivity, I don't know that I've ever seen this before in my life until I studied it this week. Daniel was about 15 years old. Remarkable. A teenager. Can you just imagine that? He lived through the destruction of his nation. The whole city was wrecked. Families torn apart. Judicial systems torn apart. Carried off by, conquered by war. Carried off into captivity. He was taken himself as a POW into a foreign country. He lived there for 70 years. Separated from his family. Separated. Living in a hostile culture for 70 years. And here's what you find, I believe, in the life of Daniel, is that one can thrive even in a pagan culture, a godless culture, in an area where they're a prisoner of war and given no privilege. You can still stand for the Lord. We're going to look at his life over the next eight weeks. And today I just want to kind of set the theme up. But this is how in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, that... The book of Daniel starts. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, now Judah was the southern half of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he did what? He besieged it. You know what it means to lay siege to something? You know how horrible it is when a city is besieged? Let me ask you, you ever feel besieged? You feel besieged by work, you feel besieged by problems, by conflict, by health problems. If that's the case with you, this series on Immovable is going to be great for you. 
And then notice what verse 2 says. And the Lord, this is key. You need to underline this sentence in your Bible. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Let me just say this. God often uses pagans to accomplish his will. If you don't believe it, just look at Scripture, Balaam and other. I mean, God will raise people up who don't even know him, who don't even submit to him, and he will many, many times use those people to correct his own people. We're going to look at that. Now notice this. It says that he gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. That is, they took things out of the temple which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought those articles into the treasure house of his God. Now you see what he's doing? He's conquered. He went there. He took over the nation. He took over the temple. He went into the temple and he took out some of the valuable items and some of the things that the Israelites, the articles that they used to worship. And he said, basically, he's mocking the Israelites' God. Your God is not God. Our God is God. Look, we've got your things in our temple. You see what he's doing? Just mocking them as a nation, decimated them. Mocking them as a people of God, decimated them. Now he's openly mocking. Look at verse 3. The king then instructed Aphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Notice this. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, that is, they were smart, intelligent, bright, had the ability to serve, that is, they were physically fit in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. Now note, Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king, had the same values as our world system today, as our culture. What is our culture value? Appearance. Got to be handsome. Uh, athletic ability, got to be physically fit. Academic aptitude and success, got to be smart. And so uh, what they're going to do is they're going to take the youngest, the brightest, the most physically fit, the people they would value as the highest, and they're going to put them through basically a three-year cultural indoctrination program. Going to teach them the ways of the Babylonians. Look at verse 5. And the king appointed for these young men a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, among those of the sons of Judah were whom? Daniel. You see it in your text? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. So he's changing their names. He gave Daniel the name of what? Belteshazzar. Don't you love pronouncing all these <laughs> names? Belte you ought to be up here doing it with a microphone on. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, you know what's going on here, don't you? Look, these are young men. These are the brightest and best of the land. There's reprogramming going on here. He wants to bring them out and separate them from their family, separate them from their history. They are systematically trying to reprogram these young Jewish teenagers 
They are shaking things up. And the number one way they're going to do that, they're going to make them forget who they are. Their Jewish heritage. They're going to make them forget whose they are. That they had followed the Lord God. They are replacing godly values with pagan values. They have separated these teens from their families and everything that is holy and right and healthy. They've given them new names and new identities. Now I want to ask you a question. At 15 years of age, do you think Daniel's life was being shaken up? Don't you think after all this, he's just 15? Now think of the average 15-year-old. Lost everything. Separated from all of this. Life is shaken to the foundation. Absolutely. And yet, I want to tell you and remind you that Daniel grew to be a great man of God, even in a terrible pagan culture. Amen? Amen. Now think about it. He kept his integrity. He kept his faith intact. And he kept getting promoted. And he kept uh, increasing in influence. Five times in the book of Daniel, it says Daniel got promoted. Daniel grew in influence. He will actually, when we read the whole story, we're going to study different segments of his life. He will serve three, and outlast, by the way, three unbelieving emperors and lead two of them to faith in the living God. At years, 85 years of age, <laughs> near the end of his life, he was second in power only to the emperor. Now think about it. From Daniel's model, you and I can learn how to live at every stage of life, young or old, in a pagan culture, without a doubt. Now today we're not going to look at his life per se, but as I said, we're going to introduce the series theme. And it's this. What do you do when you're like Daniel and your whole world is shaken up? How are you going to thrive in a hostile culture? Three simple suggestions to get us started. Number one, write it down, make a note of it. Don't be surprised by adversity. Now, I know that's so general. You say, wow, boy, I, I got up and got dressed, came out in this nasty weather, you know, just to hear him say that general. But listen, what is? I don't know what it is. But I just sometimes think when I'm doing okay and I'm trying, I'm not lying, I'm not stealing, I'm not cheating people. I just don't think bad things are supposed to happen to me. But listen, we got to remember, we should never be surprised by adversity. The children of Israel shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, they'd been warned. Surely it was shocking, but it shouldn't have been unexpected. As a teenager, even as a teenager, Daniel had been hearing Jeremiah, the prophet Zephaniah, Ezekiel, warn about it. And when your world is shaken, remember this. Some of you are going through hard times. Now remember this. Just don't be shocked because here's why. This world is not heaven. Sometimes we put all our stock in it, don't we? You'd think, looking at the lives of some Christians, that this is heaven. This is not heaven. You've got to remember, now listen, this world is a broken world. It has been broken and marred by sin, and that brokenness affects each and every one of us, doesn't it? We go through suffering. Our children suffer. Our parents suffer. You and I suffer. Everybody suffers. Do not be surprised by adversity. I love the Apostle Peter. I think it's because I, I, I'm so much like him in a lot of ways, probably the bad ways. You know, Peter never opened his mouth except to change feet, right? I mean, every time he's messing around, he's saying something and the Lord's having to stop and reprove old Peter. 
But you know what? Peter became a caring, loving pastor in his life, a great pastor. And he's writing to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And I love it. Peter says, Beloved, he's speaking to people he loves. Do not think it is strange, this fiery trial. That's what he calls it. We don't know what it was, but it was a fiery trial, not just a trial, a fiery trial. Don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Why would he say that? I'll tell you exactly why. Because adversities are common in a broken world. Jesus warned us of this. Our Lord, in this world you will experience trouble, persecution. But take heart, he said, I have overcome this world. And I tell you these things that trusting in me, you may be immovable and deeply at peace. Jesus warned us, didn't he? So we wouldn't either cave in or fall apart. Now, the typical human response to crisis is to fix blame, isn't it? Something goes wrong, something messes up, you got to fix blame. Whose fault is it? Who messed up? Who did what to get us in this jam? Actually, there are four sources of adversity in your life. No more, no less. First source of adversity when it comes is you. (laughs) May I just say that? Me. My old nature. Do you know who the biggest source of Jack Holmesley's problems are or is? Jack Holmesley, thank you. You know that well, didn't you? I heard it come from the back, Jack Holmesley. You're exactly, well, she was at the 830, but if she lived with me, she'd know that too, right, baby? I create more of my own problems than you can imagine. I, I am amazed. If I were to ask this question, besides Jesus, who do you think the greatest Christian that ever lived would be? Many of you would say whom? Paul. Did you hear that kind of go through the crowd, the Apostle Paul? Maybe some said different, but I would agree. The the great missionary, the Apostle Paul. I tell you what you ought to do sometimes. You ought to to read Romans chapter 7. And what you're going to read is the struggling of the great Apostle Paul. When he says, I do not understand what is happening. The things that I should do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't be doing, that's what I find myself doing. The good that I should do, I don't do. And the bad that I shouldn't do, that's what I find myself doing. He comes to the end of the argument and he's saying, pouring out his heart and saying, I'm struggling with sin. And he says, wretched man that I am. Who shall save me from this body of death? Do you know what that word, that phrase, body of death means? It means back in that day, it's a cultural, uh, it's relevant culturally. And uh, Paul is, is, is saying... That in that day, he's given the likeness of this. In that day, when you got put in prison and you were guilty of some heinous crime, some terrible crime, they would literally, at times, this is so horrible, they would take a dead body and chain it to you. And eventually, the, the decay of that dying man, that dying person, would begin to rot into your own flesh. And it was a slow, terrible, horrible, horrible... That's what Paul said... Who shall save me from this man I'm chained to? Well, who was Paul chained to? Himself, the old Paul, my dear friend. And he says, this old man just keeps, he's chained to me. That's one source of shakeups and adversity in our lives. Another source, I'll just move quickly through these, the world, right? 
the world. This world wants to pull you down to its level. This culture wants you to lie and cheat and connive. And if you don't, they'll fire you, but they won't hire you. A third source, Satan. Adversities, do they come from Satan? Sure they do. He's your enemy if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's your enemy, by the way, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're just a willing dupe if you don't believe in Jesus. But listen, you're at his mercy. He opposes every good thing you do. Satan. But here's another source. So we've got my old nature, or me, the world, Satan. You know what another source of adversity is in your life? Now listen to me. God. God. Sometimes God, because he loves us, will shake up our lives. Look at verse 2 in your text, and what does it say? It's almost hidden there, but it's so obvious you can't miss it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of this pagan king. Who is guiding the pieces? Who is calling the shots? I tell you, it's none other than the Lord God. This is not a Babylonian dictator who just decided to take over and took over because God was sleeping on the throne. No way! And adversity can come into your life sometimes, not always, but sometimes in my life. At least God allows it. Sometimes He sends it. That's what I want us to look at today is this. Because listen to me now. <laughs> Regardless of the source, God wants to use it for good. Regardless of the short source of your shaking and your, your adversity, God wants to use it for good. So, so the source, we spend all of our time trying to fix blame. God says, don't worry about that. I just want you to look at the solution. Because your response is so much more important than the source. So number one, write it down. Do not be, do not be surprised when adversity comes. Number two, anytime your world is shaken... You should look for ways that God could use it for good. Mm. Look for ways that God might use it for good. Did God use the adversities that happened in young 15-year-old Daniel's life for good eventually? Aren't you glad that Daniel went through faithfully what he went through? That way you and I can learn from Daniel's life today. But Daniel probably didn't see that and probably didn't sense that when he was 15 years old, my dear friend. But I do believe he began to look for ways that God might use it for good. You know, the most difficult thing I think I've ever been through in my life, my personal struggle with anxiety, social anxiety, panic attacks. Most of you know this, some of you may not. Probably about 15 years or so ago, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, I began to struggle with something I didn't even know what was going on. I'd be in a place like this and my stomach would start getting upset and I'd get nervous and I'd get dizzy and I'd, I'd get panicky and I'd feel the need to have to leave. And, and I got so bad that, that uh, I was... I, was, I didn't understand, didn't even know what it was. It was panic attacks and, and they're terrible. And if you've ever had them now, you'll know how bad... I, they are, and if you've never had them, I'm telling you, you can't understand how bad they are. <laughs> and, and I began to get, now me, I began to get reclusive. I began to get where I couldn't, I got so bad, let me just say a few things. I got so bad that I couldn't even drive down to the Winn-Dixie or up to the uh, Harris Teeter from my house. I got so bad that I was sitting at home, uh, I, I actually couldn't hardly drive myself. It's hard to even remember this, so so 
bad, and I try not to remember it, but social anxiety. Me, Happy Jack, outward going, Happy Jack. Didn't want to, didn't, couldn't, couldn't drive myself around. I got so bad, I remember <coughs> the night that I literally collapsed in the pulpit and had to have three or four of our deacons came, got me, and walked out and took me back to their office, and they, they said, what's going on? And I said, guys, I don't know what's going on, and I didn't. I thought I was losing my mind. Thought I was going crazy. And I remember saying, I don't know what's happening. I only know one thing. I can't keep going. That's all I know. I said, now I'm telling you, I'm not involved in an illicit relationship. I'm not committing adultery with my wife. I'm not a closet alcoholic. I'm telling you, I love God, but I'm telling you, I, I don't know what's going on, but something is really bad wrong with my mind and heart. And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I could not figure it out. They gave me, loved me enough, gave me a few months off, and I remember sitting at home, and I knew that night when I wept, I left that room with those deacons, and I knew I wept because here's what I knew. I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts I would never preach again. In fact, before that service started, things were so bad, and I was having a panic attack that was so bad. I was waiting for a worship leader to finish the song. And I'd get antsy waiting on anything. Anytime I had to wait or get stuck in the line or get stuck in the elevator, drive, I'd, I'd, it's very kin to, uh, what do you call it, where you're closed in? Yes, claustrophobia. Thank you, like that. Yeah, I mean, somebody said one time, well, you couldn't have got out. I said, oh, I would have got out. I'd have made a door one way or another, but I'd have got out. But I remember before the service started, I was so messed up, man, so bad. Those things were conquering me. I was down on my hands and knees, hiding behind the welcome center, breathing in a paper bag, trying not to have a major panic attack. Just hoping the worship leader could finish the song. Because once, for whatever reason, once I would get in the pulpit, I was pretty comfortable. Struggling. Sitting at home. Then you start getting what they call agoraphobic. Because you have safe places where you feel good and places where you don't feel so good. I remember home was a safe place for me. But anytime I left, and I remember we left, a man gave us a place in the mountains to stay for three months. One of the best friends I've ever had in my life. Well, one month. We stayed one month in the mountains here and two months in Colorado. But I remember up at the top of the hill was the mailbox. And I was hoping and praying to God. My goal was I was doing cognitive therapy. I didn't do anything for about a week or two. I just didn't even read my Bible, didn't do anything. Me, Happy Jack, in the middle of a large church. My goal was every day I was doing cognitive therapy. Every day I'd go to the spot I went the day before and I'd take one more step or two more steps. My heart would start racing. I'd start freaking out. I'd stand there for just a second and I'd turn around and go back. Next day, I'd get up. My family didn't even know I was doing a lot of this. I'd walk out a few more steps further. I'd push myself, push myself, push myself because I wasn't going to be trapped, and I knew God wanted to deliver me from it and help me with it. But I had to learn. There was a, there was a stop sign down at the corner that I said, if I can ever make it to that stop sign, oh, man, you would have thought I was jumping the Grand Canyon. And I finally made it. I finally made it and got back, and then we went and spent two months in Colorado, and Lord knows that's enough to straighten anybody out, right? I mean, in the middle of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and I tell you, I didn't see any good in it. I came back from that vacation, and all my staff were waiting on me, boy, waiting on me, whole team of staff, good, sharp, young, driven men. You know what they said? What's the vision? You've been up on the mountain. We're ready to go. I was thinking, guys, I'm just learning to breathe. I'm serious. 
I am serious. I'm just learning to breathe. There is no vision. It took me. Now listen to me. I lost five years of leadership. It took me four and a half to five years just to get back to normal. Not exceptional leadership to normal. I was so burned out and so conquered by anxiety, fear, and worship, uh, and, and fear that I couldn't hardly worship. God's worked that stuff out and given me lots of solutions. If you're struggling with it, please contact me so I can help you. But let me tell you what happened the other day. And none of this was in my notes, so you'll forgive me. Day before yesterday, I get a note from my son, who's a pastor. He said, Dad, have you seen on Facebook the post by, and he named a young pastor that I've mentored in the Tar Heel Leadership Network. I said, no, I hadn't seen it. He said, Dad, he's struggling with crippling anxiety. You know the answers. Will you please go help him? Boy, I was able to call that guy and send him a message yesterday and say, man, I know right where you're at. Here's what I've been through, and I want to tell you there are solutions. You're not losing your mind. You're going to make it, brother. God has a plan for you. Now, listen to me. God will use adversities in our lives, and I can relate to him like nobody else can relate to him because I've been in the valley, and I've been through the valley. Amen? Amen. And, and, and listen, I said when I... When I got off the computer with him, he contacted me back immediately and said, Thank you. Thanks, man. I think, I was, I think I'm losing my mind. I said, No, you're not. You're not. You're going to make it. You're going to make it, Justin. And you know what he said? Thanks, man. Nobody can relate to me like that. And you know what I said when I got off the computer with him? Thank you, God, for the adversity that I went through. Because he can use it for good. I want to tell you, whatever you're going through this day and this hour, God, if you'll put it in his hands and get the help you need or whatever it is, whatever adversity, God can turn the area of your greatest weakness into your greatest area of strength. He's a good God. He is a master at turning crucifixions into resurrections. Amen? He really, really is. Now, <laughs> I love Jeremiah 29 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Let me give you a quick summary, all right, because I got way sidetracked. I want to give you some things that God did in Daniel's life for good that were tough at the time. You know why God shakes us up sometimes? Because at the least God let that happen to me, right? You know why I did some things for Daniel? Let me tell you why. Sometimes these are just kind of a side note under look for ways God might use it for good in my life. Sometimes God shakes things up in our lives to inspect us, to inspect us. 
Now, not for his sake, because he knows what we're made out of, but for our sake. God wants us to know. Anytime the Bible says, and the Lord tested Abraham, or the Lord tested Daniel, he's not testing them so he can say, well, let me put a big test on them and see what they're made out of. God knows what you're made out of. He wants you to know what you're made out of. He wants you to examine your motivations, your fears, your values, your misconceptions, whatever lies you believe, he wants you to be aware of them. He wants you to see it. So when you go through a problem, you've got to ask this question. What does this problem reveal to me about me? What does this reveal to me about me? Another reason for trials and adversity, sometimes not only to inspect me, but to correct me. <laughs> God will let us go through stuff. Do you believe the Lord chastens whom he loves? Listen, Scripture says it. I mean, this is what, exactly what happened to the nation of Israel in Daniel's day. They had fallen deeply into immorality and injustice. And God says, you're addicted to other stuff, and I'm going to break you of your addictions. I love you too much to leave you that way. See, here's the fascinating thing about this whole story of Daniel. When the Jews are actually able to return after 70 years of captivity... You know what they never do again? They never, as a nation, are caught in immorality and idolatry. Never do they go off after false gods again. They learned their lessons. God disciplined them. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son He receives. If you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as a child. For what child is there who has a father who does not chasten him? But if you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate. This is what Scripture says. If you're without chastening, you're illegitimate. You're not sons or children. Furthermore, he says, we have... I'm reading Scripture right now. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For if indeed they, after a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening, he says, seems to be joyful for the present. Amen to that, right? Not fun to go through chastening, but it is painful. Nevertheless, afterward, he says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been instructed by it. Now let me ask you, did you benefit from proper correction as a child? Hmm? Absolutely. It's how you learn to read and write and talk and bathe and <laughs> eat and be nice, right? If parents don't correct children, they don't love children. You ever seen parents who don't correct their children at all? You know what they raise? A bunch of animals, brats. That's right. Thank you. Whoever said that? But they do. Sometimes God will shake things up in our world to correct us, won't he? Now I've got to move quick. Y'all not listening near fast enough. Sometimes <laughs> God shakes things up not to inspect me, not to correct me, but to direct me. You get off course and the Lord says, no, I don't want you going that way. I want you going this way, right? Listen, many are the plans of a man, Proverbs 16 says, but the Lord ordereth his steps. One of the effects of change in your life is it forces you to think about stuff you'd rather ignore and pretend it isn't there. Let me ask you, 
What's in your life right now? And you're pretending it's not a problem. Hmm? Good question, isn't it? God may bring some adversity into your life to direct that. And to direct you. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.59, I considered my ways and I turned my feet to thy testimonies. Hmm. So a good question is to ask is, where is this problem leading me? Where is this adversity leading me? Hopefully it's closer to the Lord. The fourth reason God will do it is to, God will shake things up to protect me. Not only to direct me, but to protect me. I think one of the greatest examples of this in the Old Testament is the, nation, is, is the person of, of Joseph and the nation of Israel. Joseph gets sold into slavery, you know, and his brothers sell him into slavery, and they, he winds up in prison. you never done a chronology on it, I suppose. You don't know this, but he spent 14 years in prison unjustly. 14 years he sat. 14 years for doing what? Being godly. 14 years. And then there's a famine in the land, and Joseph gets out. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he gets promoted. In the midst of being, he could have gotten bitter and sat and sour and soaked like I would have. <laughs> no, Joseph kept serving the Lord. And God eventually delivered him from prison, made him second only to Pharaoh. And you know what happened? Eventually, Joseph, in a dream, was told that there was going to, uh, Joseph interpreted a dream, said there's going to be a famine in the land. We've got to put back grain. And they started putting back grain, putting back grain. How many countless lives were saved because Joseph got put into power? Well, I want to tell you, eventually, even the lives of his own brother and father were saved. They came down because of famine and were seeking help. Joseph helped them. They didn't even know it was Joseph. And finally, when he reveals himself, oh my gosh, they're horrified. They're scared to death because they'd lied and made it look like an animal had killed him. You know what Joseph said? Anybody remember? I think it's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I may be wrong on the reference, but Joseph looks at them and they're scared to death that he's going to kill them. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Countless lives saved. The whole mission of the Messiah is coming. The seed of Abraham lay in his hands. It's a good thing he didn't get bitter in prison, isn't it? God may shake some things up to protect me. He, he saved his whole family from famine. Listen to me now. Good question to ask under this is, if you're, going, if you're being shaken, is how, how is this problem, how could it be protecting me? I am forever amazed how many times I've seen it in ministry. Sometimes... God will remove a harmful, destructive person from your life. When he does it, in mine, don't go running back to him. Sometimes God will shake things up not only to direct me and protect me, but to perfect me and grow me. I love 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while. Did you hear that? After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to share in his eternal glory and union with Christ, will himself perfect you, mature you is what that means, and give you firmness, strength, and a sure foundation. So, how can I grow from this problem? That's what you ought to ask every time a problem comes into your life. How can I grow from this problem? Now, Let's go back, and I'm going to give you one final point, and we'll close. Number one, don't be surprised when adversity comes. You with me? 
Because that was just a little side. We're going to look, we'll see all those things in the life of Daniel. How God protected him, how God directed him, how God perfected him. But listen, I, I don't, I never be surprised when adversity comes. Number two, I look for ways that God may use it for good. Because God's always working, right? That's what Jesus said, my father hitherto worketh. And I work. I mean, he worked all the time. And then look, and he's working all the time. He's a big God. Third thing you do when adversity comes, this is maybe the most important. You trust God for what you don't understand. The older I get, I learn this in life, my brother, my sister. Because the truth is, most of the things that God has allowed or brought into my life, especially adversities, I never understood it when I was going through it. Why in the world he'd let that happen to me? But I've learned through years that when I don't understand, I simply need to trust him. In fact, did you know scripture says that? Proverbs 20 verse 24 says these words, A man's steps are of the Lord. This is talking about the righteous, right? The one who is not, not righteous in our deeds, but we're saved. We know the Lord. That he orders our steps. Now look at me. If you don't know Jesus, you are at the mercy of Satan. And God pity your soul. And I hate it for you. And you need to accept Jesus and you can have the Lord guiding your steps. But I'm telling you, I wouldn't want to be in this God-forsaken, evil, bloodthirsty world without Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. At any price, any, you, you mention it, buddy. It is not worth it to me. I wouldn't want to go through the trials I've been through. I wouldn't have made it through them without Jesus Christ guiding me. Most of the time, I wasn't even aware he was guiding me, but he was. And you listen, he was. But the scripture says, a man's steps are of the Lord. They are ordered by the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? If God is directing our steps, how can we really know? It's difficult. But I'll tell you one of the greatest verses of Scripture that I've ever learned in my life is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It has given me more comfort, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, than any other passage perhaps in the whole of the Word of God. And it says this, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And he shall direct thy paths. There is a mark right down the middle of that verse. On one side, my responsibility and mine alone. On the other side, God's responsibility and his alone. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. My responsibility. Lean not to your own understandings. My responsibility. In all my ways, acknowledge him. My responsibility. And then there's a line drawn and I dare not get on the other side. You do all those things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understandings. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And what? He shall direct, he shall direct your paths. It's not yours, it's not mine to direct our paths, but it's his. And let me tell you something. He does his job 100% of the time, 100% perfectly. Amen? You just trust him. No matter what you're going through, you just trust him as your pastor. Part of my goal and my ministry and my life is to help you successfully live, in God's definition of the word, successfully live the life that God has given you. Not just survive, but thrive. Now, 
That's just an intro to the series, okay? I'll try to be on time next week. It's just long and hard to give an intro and make it applicable. But in the next two weeks, we're going to look at this 15-year-old's life. We're going to look at his youth. We're going to break his life down in segments. We're going to look at Daniel's youth. And I'd encourage those of you who are young and teenagers to come. Because we're going to look at questions like this in Daniel's life. What do you do when you're asked to violate your convictions? Hmm? What do you do when you can't go along with the crowd and you're the Christian oddball? What do you do when you're called the goody two-shoes and you're the one that's being tempted? How do you appeal to a pagan boss and still get promoted? Because that's what Daniel does. What do you do when those in authority dismiss and demean your beliefs? That's a tough one, isn't it? You guys need the answers. You young ladies need the answers, and all of us do too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day, and I look forward to the coming weeks, but I look forward to today because you're directing our paths. Lord, I thank you for your hand in our lives. So many ways, Lord, you have proven yourself time and time and time again. You have pulled me and us up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. You have set our feet on a solid rock and established our goings and put a new song into our heart, even praise unto our God. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will speak to those who are going through the worst adversity of their lives today. Thank you that a month and a half ago, two months ago, you had me schedule this series. Thank you, God, that you have so worked it that it would fall on this day. Why? Because you care for your people. And you want them to know that their response to adversity is far more important than the source of their adversity. That's what we get worried about. We want to fix blame. You say, look at the source of solution, of hope, not the source of the problem. And I pray, God, that you will guide us, walk with us, and help us to walk with you through the trials we're enduring right now. In Jesus' name, amen.